Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Riskind. Sarah is the current director of choral activities at Eureka College in Central Illinois. Her compositions have been performed by the Appalachian State Glee Club, the Pacific Acquires Interludes Ensemble, and Las Cantanderas del Noroeste, among others. Among her works are Jewish and Judo-Christian music, secular pieces with improvisatory elements, and choral settings with string obligato parts. She holds degrees from the University of Washington, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and Williams College. Sarah Riskin, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks for having me, Steve. All right. So I know in addition to being a composer and conductor, I know you're also an accomplished violinist. So did you start your your musical path on violin? I started on piano when I was in second grade, and then I started violin in third grade at school and with lessons a few years later. But violin was really an important way that I could play in groups with people. Mm-hmm. And enjoy that ensemble experiment experience, which really led to me getting into choral music later on. Sure. Did you see yourself growing up to be a musician? Is that what you always sort of envisioned yourself doing? Well, for a long time, I thought I would just keep doing music on the side of my more conventionally considered useful career (laughs) um, because I was good at academics. And so in college at Williams, I started as a math major and they have an excellent math program. But a year into college, I went to this Talis Scholars concert at Tanglewood over the summer And I had a revelation, which is not something I would say ever happens to me other than that moment. (laughs) And I thought, why am I doing math when I'm not that excited to take further classes in math? Whereas music is really my passion and there are a lot more ways to pursue music than I had realized before. At the time I thought I would go into musicology and just do a lot of early music all the time. And then later that it turned into being a conductor. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to take a poll among musicians and see how many of them also had an early interest in math. Because that that was sort of what I was looking at as well when I was in high school. Like, oh, I could probably do some career with math. And then same thing. I realized I was much more excited about music than I was about math. (laughs) Math was really fun, but... It is. So when did you begin writing and arranging music? I started composing, I think, when I was about nine years old. Oh, Um, yeah? My wonderful piano teacher, Sheila Kaspik in Needham, Massachusetts, was incredibly supportive of me just coming in and playing whatever song I was working on. In fact, I remember one in particular called Texas Afternoon, my parents are Texan, and I've visited Texas a lot, and I still know how it goes. Do you do you keep those hanging around somewhere, those early compositions? Um, I think only in my brain, probably, although we might have some video recordings somewhere. <laughs> All right. So I know, uh, you know, going back to your degrees, you know, you and I spent two years together while working on our uh, DMA degrees at the University of Washington studying choral conducting. 
So how do you feel that your study of conducting, both at the University of Washington uh, as well as your master's degree at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, um, how do you think that has influenced your writing as a composer? Well, being a choral conductor has made me extremely aware of what singers enjoy doing, Mm -hmm. what singers find difficult in so many ways, um, and kind of what conductors might be looking for or what I as a conductor might be looking for. So I have often written based on those ideas of kind of what's out there, what might be needed for the musicians. Yeah, do you take the same sort of approach with instrumental writing? Because I know you do have uh, quite a bit of, especially string obligatos, but also chamber uh, chamber groups that you've written for also. I think about that a little differently. Um, with mm-hmm. choral music, I am often thinking particularly of educational settings or church choirs, um, both of which are very familiar to me. Um, and with instrumental writing, Um, I don't do it as often anymore for just straight instrumental music. Um, And when I write violin parts with choral pieces or something like that, um, I usually write something that I'm capable of playing myself. And I'm, you know, a decent violinist. I can sound pretty good, but I'm not the level of a lot of professionals who focus on violin. So I think my knowledge of what is idiomatic on the instrument really comes in handy, as well as my familiarity with some kind of folk styles, like a little bit of knowledge of klezmer music comes into my Jewish music a lot. Um, And I also play Irish and French Canadian fiddle tunes a lot. So (laughs) that probably all comes into play when I'm writing those string parts. Yeah. You know, I know you've spent many summers at Walden School on faculty in the program for creative musicians. Are you still involved in that program? I am. Yeah, I've been on the leadership team recently, and we designed an online version of it last year, and I'm really hoping we can be in person this year. But (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the Walden School because it has been an incredible experience in my career, and it's just full of wonderful people who are so creative and it just fills me with creative energy to be around all of those young people ages nine to 18 who are improvising and composing and doing wacky things with (laughs) kind of the sounds around them and um, unusual things with instruments and voices uh, just really, you know, puts me in a creative mindset. Once I recover from the exhaustion of the summer, I really like to compose after that. Sure. So is is what you do at Walden, is that mostly focused on composition and improvisation? Um, I am the choral director there, so I love working with the choruses there because the musicianship curriculum is integrated into choral rehearsals. So the students are studying solfege, ear training, rhythm syllables, all sorts of things Mm -hmm. in their musicianship classes every day. And so I can bring that in by doing warm-ups where maybe student section leaders will improvise in a mode showing the hand signs to their students who will sing along with that and then it all makes a cool sound together and then we can apply that to a piece we're working on in that mode just to name one example or you know we'll learn most of our pieces on solfege and or rhythm syllables which really helps gain a deep knowledge of the music yeah do you this is just sort of, um, I, I don't know if it's a random question, but do you think uh, um, 
a whole ensemble could improvise successfully at the same time? I do. Yeah. Um, I know that both you and I actually studied choral improvisation um, mm -hmm. in our doctoral program. Um, and so I'm wondering if you had a particular kind of improvisation you were getting at right now. No, I'm a, you know, just, is it possible for an entire group collectively to make something up on the spot that works all together? What do you think is the best approach to begin that process? Well, there are just so many ways to do it. Um, one piece that I did at Walden a few years ago that I really loved was Pauline Oliveros's piece called Wind Horse. Mm -hmm. And this is basically a guided improvisation where the group is not aiming for specific harmonies or melodies, but rather they're making sound with sustained pitches on vowels, um, other kind of vocalizations or kind of organic sounds, organic rhythms um, that all kind of creates a certain atmosphere together. Mm -hmm. And although it's not what some people prefer to listen to, it's such an amazing experience to be part of that because you're deciding in every moment, okay, what do I hear? How can I make this piece even cooler or be part of this texture? What makes sense? So everybody's really composing the piece at the same time. And it's really different every time, as long as you teach them how to listen, which took a while for the 12 year olds. Yeah. And I think that's the key is, you know, you're not going to be successful right away. It takes teaching and it takes learning how to do this, just like it takes uh, time to learn any other any other skill, uh, learning how to create that sound picture. I love that idea. Um, so so thinking about that improvisation, sorry, just got so, so many questions in my head. Uh, so what do you think is the role of improvisation in composition? Well... I think most composers improvise as a main part of the process of composing. And so, you know, some of us will play some things on the piano and then, you know, think of something we like and then go with that, maybe improvise more. Sometimes I will record a few things that I'm improvising on the piano so that I can go back if I remembered something that I liked and couldn't remember it later. Um, I often improvise with my voice when I'm setting text. Um, I'm not really dependent on the piano as a composer. I like to do things in my brain and with my voice. For the violin, I guess I probably occasionally do it on the violin, but usually it's again on my in my head first. Yeah. Um, so I think there's always improvisation involved. It's just people don't always think of it that way. And to a lot of classically trained musicians, the idea of improvisation is so scary because they might be used to a high level of accuracy and really high quality musicianship, and they're really afraid of making mistakes. But I think learning how to make mistakes is such an important part of being a good musician. And it's so freeing too. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, all right. So we've already alluded to it several, uh, several times. Uh, so far that you have this um, interest in Jewish music uh, because of your heritage and your uh, your family. You know, as a major carer of your study, 
including your dissertation, you dealt with Sephardic music, uh, music from Jewish people from Spain, Portugal, and surrounding regions. So what first interested you in that music in particular? Well, several things. Um, first of all, we sometimes listened to Sephardic music when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, second of all, I studied Spanish growing up. Um, as I said, my parents are both from Texas and my dad's from the border of Mexico. And so the culture down there is really very much shaped by Mexican culture. And so my whole family is really into speaking Spanish. And I just think Ladino is an amazing language. Um, it's um, very close to uh, medieval Castilian Spanish, but there's so many borrowed words from, you know, Turkey and Greece. Um, you know, Bulgaria, all kinds of regions around there. And it's different in each place that it exists, every place that it developed with the Jews who are living in those areas. Um, and, you know, now I, I have noticed by looking at choral editions of Sephardic music that um, although there is some really wonderful Sephardic music arranged for choir, there isn't a high level of understanding of it in the choral community and of how the language is pronounced. And um, it's very inconsistently written in terms of how the spelling works. And mm -hmm. so I thought that was an area that I could explore. I also have to say the modes are something I love about it the most because the modes in Sephardic music are based on the Turkish makam modal system, which is microtonal. Um, and so there are some really amazing scales and rules for how melodies resolve that is all a part of Sephardic music. And I really enjoyed learning about how that works. Interesting. So how do you feel your study, your in-depth study of the Sephardic music has influenced your compositions? I think the study of modes might be one of the biggest ways it's influenced me. Um, I already knew about a lot of Jewish modes and many of them are common between Sephardic and Ashkenazi music, which is something I'd like to learn more about. But I had not realized what kinds of influences were behind those modes and where they came from. Cool. So. When you're not composing and when you're not teaching, because I know you've got a, a busy teaching schedule trying to uh, keep a program running, what sort of things do you do to relax? What sort of hobbies do you have? Well, I really love to read. I'm pretty obsessed with fiction. I get books on my phone through libraries. Um, don't tell Seattle Public Library that I don't live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, I hope they're not listening. <laughs> I read, you know, fiction, young adult fiction, historical fiction, fantasy, science fiction. I just think it's so important for my mental health to have that escape and also to be able to learn about kind of other perspectives by reading fiction and get sure. into other people's minds. So what are you reading right now? Oh, it's this amazing series. The first book is called The City of Brass. Um, and it's based on Middle Eastern, um, I guess mythology might be one way to put it, um, but it's a fantasy series that instead of being based on the traditional European medieval model is very different, but with really compelling characters 
and a lot of gray areas about who the good guys are. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have a chance to listen to some of Sarah's compositions. Welcome back. With me today is Sarah Riskind. So let's start today with a piece you had premiered just before lockdown in February 2020, Psalm of the Sky, set for tenor bass choir, piano, and violin avogado. You know, I was really interested in the text for this piece, a modern reinterpretation of Psalm 23 by Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt. Uh, so instead of the traditional, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we hear, you are my parachute, I will not fall. So can you tell us more about working with this text and how it shaped your thoughts as you composed this? Sure. Um, first of all, I'll mention that Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt and I went to the same college, but okay. we did not overlap. Um, we were both members of the magical group, the Williams College Elizabethans, which unfortunately no longer exists, but we had a really strong alumni reunion um, situation. So I got to know her through that. Um, and I loved this text. I found the imagery to be so vivid. And I really love text painting because as I mentioned earlier, I love early music. I've sung a lot of it. Um, you know, there are some magicals where it's kind of a cute, maybe cheesy sort of text painting, but there's also a lot of really beautiful ways that text painting appears, say in motets or um, some of the less famous magicals going beyond Fair Phyllis and so forth. <laughs> um, so in your arms, let's see, you are my parachute, I will not fall. In your arms, I float easy. Um, I don't have the poem completely memorized anymore, but uh, there are just a lot of images of movement um, of kind of falling in the parachute and waving along at the end, spin with me. I made something very, very melismatic that way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's take a moment and we'll listen to Psalm of the Sky.
All right, we'll go next to Weep O Mine Eyes for SATB Choir and Chamber Ensemble. So one of your interests that we haven't talked much about is that you alluded to with the last song was your interest in early music. You know, Weep O Mine Eyes was, of course, a madrigal by John Bennett based on the air by John Dowland, Flow My Tears. You know, I can catch elements of the melody in your piece. So can you tell me more about your interest in early music and in the creation of this piece in particular? Sure. I... Um fell in love with early music starting in high school. I had a composition teacher named Steve Halloran and he would play all kinds of music for us in our classes that I was taking with him. And um, one of them was the 40 part motet by Thomas Tallis, Baminalium. And that music just really became a part of me singing in the Williams College Elizabethans in college. Um, and Weep O Mine Eyes was one of our classic pieces we sing over and over again. I love in early music how each part is really important and how they weave together in a magical way. And I actually have not written a lot of pieces that are explicitly based on early music, but in Weep O Mine Eyes, I focused on kind of drawing out each motive in a certain way, combining parts, and then bringing in the chamber orchestra to give it a different sound world than in the original. Yeah, it definitely is. And it, you know, you can catch a little bit of that weep all mine, but it, it is completely set differently. And the chamber ensemble for sure gives it a, a, a completely different feel. All right, so let's take a moment and we'll listen to a bit of Weep O Mine Eyes.
So let's turn next to a piece that shows your talent and expertise in working with Jewish music and themes in your setting of Ose Shalom for SATB piano and violin. I love the rhythmic syncopated impetus of this piece, almost in a style of Latin rhythms. So tell us more about what you were thinking as you wrote this. I have no idea why I chose to write this with that sort of tango style, but that's just what came into my head. In fact, I believe I was sitting in the library at University of Washington, surrounded by other people and deciding to compose on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that just that melody just kind of came to me and it expanded from there. We don't always as composers have, you know, a flash of inspiration. I bet you would agree about that. <laughs> but you know, sometimes when you have the right mindset, the right energy, um, then you roll with it. So what what connection did you have with this text? What what took you to this text to use? Um, so this is a classic, you know, central text in Judaism that I grew up hearing. Um, the there's one particular melody that's most famous. And it keeps going from there. Mm -hmm. um, and it it means a lot to me when I hear it. I am not particularly religious, but um, being Jewish is an important part of my identity. And going to temple um, has always been a place where I feel very prayerful because of the music that I'm hearing. Great. All right. Well, let's take a moment here and we'll listen to Ose Shalom.
And lastly today, let's talk about your Oz cantata. So you and I share a love for the Oz series written by L. Frank Baum back in the early 20th century. You know, I had a privilege to participate in the premiere of this piece as part of one of your conducting recitals at the University of Washington. So so I just want you to talk about your love of the books and how you created this cantata. These books were very important in my childhood. They were also important in my dad's childhood and also to his father. Um, So my dad read these books to me when I was growing up and I learned to read by looking over his shoulder and whenever there was a big word, I would ask about it. (laughs) And so I knew they meant a lot to him and he's always talked about how although they're ostensibly children's books, there are also some very adult themes. Um, And for instance, um, the fourth movement of my piece, Ozma, um, has a transformation of a character who we thought was a boy. And then this character ends up being transformed to the character's true self, which is Princess Ozma of Oz. And so I really liked that moment in the book, which is something that you know, we really have a lot of equivalence to in the real world. And so what what process did you go through as you were sort of putting together the, the libretto and figuring out how you wanted to create this cantata? Well, I was at my parents' house at the time, so I took the stack of Oz books, threw them on my bed, and just kind of opened them up, tried to remember some of my favorite scenes, and it was actually quite easy. Um, so one of the movements is about TikTok, kind of a a robot creature um, who kind of comes to life during that moment. Um, And then there was also the patchwork girl, again, a theme of magically coming to life. Um, And Jack Pumpkinhead, similar idea. So I had some themes and once I started going, I realized how they fit together. So were you trying to create a, a, a sort of a seamless story? I mean, not seamless, but are you... Are you trying to tell a complete thought or are you trying to create individual vignettes that, that go together? How are you approaching that? I would say much more individual vignettes with the four movements. Um, and for each movement, I did start with a really long um, amount of text and then I cut it down a lot so that you know it was really just kind of the most important parts so that it wouldn't be incredibly long but would really still convey its point. Sure. I think my favorite part is probably the narrator. I mean, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) I always say that. For my listeners, uh, that was the part that Sarah asked me to perform when we performed it. It was a perfect role for you. (laughs) All right. So we're going to listen to some highlights here from the Oz Cantata.
voice, while his face continued to wear its jolly smile, that Tip again burst into a peal of laughter. Even Balmy was not without curious interest in the man her magic had brought to life, for after staring at him intently, she presently asked, All right. So, Sarah, what are you working on now? Well, I have a few projects in the works. Um, I just completed a soprano duet called Aduro Vos, um, which, because of the Song of Songs Latin text, immediately turned into kind of neo-Monteverdi. Um, <laughs> but that's when I started in May and recently finished because during this pandemic, a lot of people might be wanting smaller pieces they could do at a distance or maybe just on Zoom taking turns who's muted. Um, so I really had fun with that and was trying to not put much pressure on myself to compose anything really major during this time. 
Um, I also am going to write an art song for my wonderful colleague, Dr. Adriana Martinez, who is Mexican. And so I'm going to write a Spanish art song for her. And I am also currently writing a choral piece for Purim, which is a Jewish holiday that takes place usually around March. Um, because there's a lot of music out there for Hanukkah that choral conductors are doing. Um, and maybe to a lesser extent for some other Jewish holidays, but I believe Purim is one that has been neglected that has some potential, especially for showing the importance of sticking up for your people and especially a woman doing so, which is what happens with Queen Esther. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know off the top of my head if I know any songs for Purim, so I'm excited to hear what you come up with. Thank you. So if our listeners want to learn more about you and hear more of your music, where are you located online? Um, you should go to my website, sarahriskin.com. I also have a SoundCloud and I'm on Project Encore as well. And I also sell some of my music on Swirly Music. On Swirly Music. All right. All right. Well, Sarah Riskin, I appreciate talking to you today. It has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. My guest today was composer Dr. Sarah Riskind. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Sarah Riskind, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for future guests, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.